Welcome to the inaugural episode of It's in the Experience, an original podcast series produced by the Association for Experiential Education. I'm Sherry Bagley, Executive Director of AE and host of It's in the Experience. If you are hoping to learn more about experiential education, you've come to the right place. With me today are two individuals who know experiential education. Brian Croft, Director of Outdoor Education, Touch of Nature at Southern Illinois University, has a rich career as a camp counselor, facilitator, professor, mentor, and director of outdoor programs across the Heartland region of the United States. And from halfway around the world, Rod Field, founder and CEO at Higher Ground Group Australia, is a climber, equestrian, motorcycle enthusiast, mountaineer, and more. He brought his love of these activities into his program and works with groups across the Asia-Pacific region. Thanks so much for being here. Good to be here. Well, thank you for being the first ones on, for helping us launch this podcast. We're really excited to move into this new era of AEE and reaching out to people outside of our association who want to learn more about experiential education. And we want this podcast to inform them about what it is we do in our work and maybe a little bit what we do outside of our work. So I'm going to start off by doing a little activity. Uh, this is one of the activities that sometimes we do with our groups as we facilitate them. But I'm going to give you two about a minute and a half to find some commonalities between the two of you, some things that the two of you have in common. Oh, wow. Well, we were both up for the role of James Bond. I remember that. Let's see yeah, that. Yeah. He edged me because of the accent, which I thought was a little bad. <laughs> you didn't compete in the Olympics, did you? Uh, well, I chose not. Okay, that's right. That's not what we'll be able to use. Yeah, no, you got me there. Have you ever been to like a, a dive bar listening to Madonna in like Washington, D.C.? Yes, I'm poet. Okay. I also have commonality number one. Number one. Number one. Anything around your work experience. Oh. 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 There's the professionalism we were supposed to bring to this podcast. <laughs> uh, were you on the board of directors for AE? Yes. Uh, wow. Yeah, I was. Wow. Are there any commonalities, actually? Other than the sense of humor. Um, yeah. The uh, You're aging slower than me. Um, I feel like I've like taken <laughs> over you. Like I, the, the viewers can't see this. I can see you and you look the same as when I met you. And I <laughs> like I became a director of something. So maybe just the director for CEO life. We could get into that later. Sure. Yeah. That with those titles comes stress, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say we both have gray hair and like you don't. So, so, so far we like the Madonna music and dive bars. Uh, we both board of directors, and uh, you both direct program. We do. Let's do that. Yes, that's awesome. So, what program do you direct, Rad? Can you tell us a little about your program and what you do? Sure. So, in Australia, we work domestically in outdoor education in Australia, which is a little bit different to maybe North America and some other places in the world in how it is as an industry. And we do a lot internationally, so we're, um, I suppose, known for our programs within Asia and with young people from Asia coming to Australia for four to six weeks. So yeah, so 
kind of been going since 1995, I think we started it. And I do have grey hair. Brian has, uh, just can't see it. And the reason I don't have as much facial hair is because it's quite grey too, and it makes me look old. So I've got to that stage in life where I start to, uh, to keep it a bit shorter. But yeah, that's what we do. We've got a, had a couple of centres pre-COVID, but we've kind of contracted down to one centre now, which is good, which takes a few great hairs away. But yeah, now we're kind of just started an organisation at Higher Ground in Hong Kong and starting to be set up in Asia now, which was always our plan pre-COVID. But yeah, that's what we do. Thanks. Brian, you want to share a little about what you direct? Yeah, so I am currently the director of Touch of Nature Outdoor Education Center, which is the Outdoor Education Center for Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And so we kind of do a couple different things. Uh, historically, we were designed as an experiential laboratory for the university. So the idea was that the uh, president of our university at the time wanted a space to augment sort of what was happening in the classroom instruction. And so we started with 150 acres on this lake that's about 20 miles south of the university. And now we are 3,100 acres and do everything from hospitality programs, community programs, outdoor education, summer camps, uh, and everything. I would love to tell the story. Originally, the uh, to find the athletes that they were looking for in terms of the well-rounded nature at the time, the practice football field was actually on our property. And so to be a football player at SIU, you would come here and then you were a camp counselor uh, and then you practiced football at the same time. But the idea was, what are we doing in higher ed? And then how do we provide an experiential classroom, whether that's everything from not just, you know, obviously education, but also forestry, even culinary skills. They were like, well, nursing, you can be the camp counselor, you can be the nurse, you can do all of this stuff. And what that was able to do was then also provide programs to the region as a whole. So super cool. And I teach too for the university, but that's, you know, secondary. Thank you. What got you into experiential education to begin with? What was your first brush with it, maybe either as a participant yourself or as a facilitator or a practitioner? What I find interesting about experiential education is we have these moments throughout our whole life where we are literally a student of or, you know, a practitioner of experiential education. We just don't know it. And I think that, you know, we, we talk about a lot, whether it's, you know, being a camp counselor or doing an internship or like these are all forms of experiential ed. We're just we just don't always define it as such. And so for me, though, in terms of my career, I came into uh, into my school, my, my higher ed college, knowing exactly what I was going to do for a living. I was going to be in TV, and that didn't work out. And then I was going to be in film, and then I was going to be a music teacher, and then I knew that I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. And so I literally got a job working at this center almost 20 years ago as a student worker just to pay the rent. And it wasn't until that moment where I realized that... My passion in life was helping create experiences where people could find self-discovery, become their best selves and all of those things. And so that was it for me, you know? And so I was, whether that's being, you know, an outdoor educator or a camp counselor or a trip leader or any of this, obviously my experience is mostly in the outdoor sector. It really was at its core. It's like my job is to facilitate an experience that helps people create learning whether it's personal growth or development or anything. So for me, it was 20 years ago at this very center that I'm at now. And so the idea then, cool, to come full circle, to be able to come back and be director of the same place that gave me my start, like that's pretty neat. 
awesome. Yeah, I, I think for me it was um, I started in another industry. I was in as a radio announcer, and then I kind of at the same time I was climbing in the early nineties. Right, that's a long time ago. And then I always wanted to help young people. I had a bit of an adverse childhood, so I'd always wanted to go and help kids. Climbing became a way I didn't realise it at the time, but it helped me just with my own, you know, personal stuff that I didn't realise I was carrying through. And then I met with Glyn Thomas, actually, who was a former editor of the um, AE Journal. We went way back and he was in the industry. So he introduced me to it. And then I eventually moved out of radio into this industry, working with high need young people in adventure therapy and then started high ground. So for me, it was a personal thing of understanding how adventure was helping me learn more about myself. And yeah, so that was it. So am I right in saying, so, okay, we're going to go backwards to commonalities. I was a, I DJed back when I was in high school. Uh, wow. So is that another one that we have? Yeah, we do. The blue light discos, mate. That was what I ever did. Yeah. When I first started in high school, that was one of the police ran. Best way to meet girls, as you would know. I did Midwestern weddings, so I'm pretty sure we were playing a very different yeah. song set, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. So you both worked with groups, participants, and, and facilitated programming, be it climbing or canoeing or just initiatives. And I know a lot of us facilitators have those favorite aha moments, those moments where you watch a kid or an adult, the light bulb goes off and they have this amazing understanding of, of what we're trying to do or, or what we're working toward. Do you have a favorite aha moment story, either of you, to share? Got a few. I think there's one story for me, this young kid called Conch, and this is right at the start for me where I realized the power of when it comes to facilitating that as a facilitator, you're not important to the journey. You're just there to, to guide it. And we were doing the rappelling. And this young top kid was pretty scared and he let everyone else go. And then it was a 40-meter abseil and it was either abseil or walk two hours with him back. And so I was doing everything I could to coerce him into doing the abseil. Not good practice because I didn't want to do the two and a half hour walk. There was a shorter abseil and uh, we went and did it. He was so scared. He went to the toilet twice and... But uh, anyway, we went to the shorter abseil. I gave that as an option to him. And as we go down, I'm abseiling down beside him. It's getting dark. And just as we went over the edge, he kind of leapt and put his arms around my neck. And he's a big boy. He's a big rugby player. And um, I'm like, I'm kind of then rappelling down about another six metres with him hanging off me, slightly sobbing. And we get to the bottom. And he's like, are you all right? So just discompose yourself. He goes around the corner and he's early, because none of his mates would have seen him. His mate said, oh, how'd you go? And he goes, yeah, yeah, no worries. I did it by myself, went down. Uh, Rod wasn't there. It was, and he just starts talking it up. And, and I think the thing for me that I learned in that was initially I was going, oh, okay, well, I've got to talk to him about honesty. And no, I don't. It was more for me about just allowing that experience to be what it needed to be for him at that time. And, it was a positive, rewarding experience for him regardless. And, you know, the way he shared that with his mates. And I think the power of just allowing the experience to be, you know, we need to facilitate, but I think really understanding our own agenda in it. And that was right at the start of my career. I'm glad I had that experience because it guided me from then. Well, mine's not cool like that. 
Mine actually, it's a couple, but you know, one kind of advises it. Obviously, I've done experiential education through the outdoor lens, but lately it's more in, in the higher ed world where I've worked for the past 10 years. And to me, it's starting my victories, I kind of say, are actually now just kind of seeing the students that I've been able and sort of like my successes are their successes. You know, it's all, I had a grad assistant that's now doing this at this college or doing this. And, and my favorite actually was one, um, I, I took my grad assistant at the time to an AE conference and we actually went early so that he could go to the outdoor orientation symposium. And it was my aha moment was seeing him the day that evening and having him come back and seeing how he wanted to take everything that he learned and apply it directly to what it was we were doing and how excited he was. And it, to me, that was an aha moment because we don't always, our experience doesn't always have to be climbing a mountain or paddling a river. Our experience can be, you know, I, I had a, a great professor of mine say, you know, a, a lecture when done well can be an experience. And I think sometimes as experiential educators, we're so focused on, no, we got to get up and we got to do, but really our job is to create an engaging experience and then create the path that we can reflect on that experience and then create meaning from it. And it was in that moment that even in a quote unquote work environment, like higher ed, we can take our experiential ed lens and approach and put it to supervision, mentorship, and advising and see people grow, learn, and, and develop, which was cool. Yeah. Thanks. You all are just feeding in all the right lines at the right time. So, Brian, you're in Southern Illinois. Mm. Rod, you are in Australia. Very identical. And Rod works a lot in the Asia Pacific region, different areas. What do you think is different about experiential education in the, the different geographical places that you all work. Brian, what would you think is different in Australia? Other than the crazy terminology, uh, <laughs> uh, you little ripper. I looked that one up. Say guy, Mike. That means that's terrific for those of you that don't know. I have a cheat sheet over here when I talk with Rod. So I think for me, in my conversations with Rod, I think we... I think everyone has been practitioners of experiential education for a long time. One of the things that I see from overseas in, in ROD is really like looking at things like certifications and accreditation and things like that. I feel like there, there seems to be more of a push overseas than there is here stateside. And I actually kind of am jealous of that because I think in some ways it establishes relevancy and even... Uh, just authority of the, what we do. It's not just, it, you know, it's not just about going on YouTube and watching how to facilitate this thing and then, oh yeah, I could do that and then go. I actually think that it seems as though there's more intentionality behind training, credentialing, accreditation, that kind of thing overseas. I'd actually love to see more of that here in the U.S. because again, I think it, it brings sort of validity and relevancy to what it is that I do as a career here. Right. I don't know if you feel that way, but that's something that, I, that at least my perception, uh, that's what it is. Yeah, look, I think we do in Australia, whilst we have no national mandate or statutory requirement from the standards perspective, the industry is very uh, proactive in setting up our own and making sure accreditation. We do have national certificates, like college degrees that you can get that come out with solid qualifications that are recognised by the government. So, yes, definitely. I think in looking in a small part, I know about the North American scene, it's 
Very much here. I mean, being smaller, we do have that sense of a, a smaller industry. And I suppose our industries come out of the more an education framework as opposed to, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, a summer camp, summer type program with universities that run programs like yours, Brian, whereas in Australia, it's mostly schools that are that or market. And that's either school, private schools running their own centers, you know, where kids go for 12 months at a time at one level to three-day camps, to five-day camps that are in school time. And I think, again, outdoor education, when we use the term here in Australia, means more that kind of personal development enrichment-type programs as opposed to environmental education. It's not wholly and solely. Uh, I understand a lot of it is in North America. And I think the other thing that we... Programs like yours don't exist too much here, Brian, which I think is a bit of a shame. There are some good degrees. Australians are a bit more casual about university qualifications than I think people are in North America. You know, it's like, should I go to university, Dad? Sure, whatever you want. No worries. Just uh, have a crack at whatever you like. Most Australians are, as opposed to you must go and acquire a whole lot of debt and get an education as a byproduct. So I think that's one of the differences too, that we kind of we have less of that. Asia is a completely different thing and it's emerging and I, I actually believe Asia is the place where we can all learn a lot you know particularly at a couple levels there's international schools there that experiential learning because of the IB curriculum is very much a inherent in curriculum that they teach so they had heads of experiential learning in these schools that run everything from service to yeah, it's creativity, action, and service, which are the three parts of the part of the IB curriculum. So they have these new units within the school, people in the school that facilitate that. And it's, again, completely different. So with this conference AEU's got coming up in Singapore in June, there's a lot of people that are going to come across that and more from institutions and from schools, private schools or international schools. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be able to be a part of all these three regions and there's so much that we can learn from each other. And I, I'm actually quite excited about how the industry is going to grow as these things become more prevalent, you know, within the industry and a lot more information shared. So what is the biggest challenge facing you right now? Your program, your work, biggest challenge? I need to make a list. No, I, <laughs> no, I, I think it's hard. I, I think for me, it is, I think everyone believes in what we do. It's one thing to believe in it, but it's another thing to support it, whether it's financially or even sometimes I look at outdoor education in the same way that I see the arts, you know, as it's not tied to direct curriculum standards. What is the role of personal growth and development in a traditional pre-K-12 kind of school? And, 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 you know, speaking for the outdoors, I think outdoor experiences are really, really important. But in the same way, are we willing to fund them? You know, and whether that's, you know, field trips or outdoor experiences, you know, we have people all the time, we want to come. And then again, to provide a quality experience, I have to find, I have to have a quality facility and I have to have quality staff to do that. And so oftentimes then when I say, okay, well, it's going to cost this much money, I'm met with like, ah, no, that's just not worth it for us. So it's not that people don't want it. I think it's how do we create how do we create a world where the sticker shock isn't there? You know, I, I use rock climbing, for example, you know, if I say, Hey, for, you know, you come out and we'll do a three, we can do a three hour rock climbing experience for you and, and your students for this much money. And it, I'm often met with, well, you know, that's a lot of money. Can you cut us a deal? 
And I started to think, I'm like, well, would you like me to, you know, should I take off money off of the equipment that is, you know, <laughs> keeping you safer? Yeah. Do I take off like, well, the amount of the qualities or certifications that our instructors have, you know, in terms of their ability to provide a safe environment. So it's really tough. I want to believe that people want to do what it, what it is we offer, but if people can't afford it, how can we help subsidize it? So again, I'm not saying that it should be, the cost should be directly attached or prescribed to the person, but then how can we subsidize it so that we are able to, to properly do it in the way that it should be done? Yeah, I think for us, it's at the moment, we are about to launch into Asia Pacific start offices. And obviously we did it. And I think now our, our actual challenge is probably trying to keep up with the demand now that I'm a bit surprised about, particularly in Asia. I think people are coming out of COVID and schools in Asia, obviously, who locked down pretty hard. And a lot of kids, there's, there's kids, you know, particularly in Hong Kong, some of our schools there that spent less of their schooling life when they started school over the last three years. They spent very little actually in the school. So their whole experience with school was at home in front of a screen and not very experiential, interactive at all. So I believe that there's an appetite there. It's just for us now to try and find the right programs because it's not all about the outdoors. I think the connectedness for me of the experience, which is, so we don't sell activities, you know, we just want to facilitate learning is what we say. And sometimes that's outdoors and sometimes that's not. I think that creating that common link and convincing parents, well, it's not convincing parents, it's providing a doorway where the parents can just walk through with their kids because I think their appetite there is that our kids need to get outdoors. Day programs, particularly in Hong Kong, because they couldn't, weren't allowed to do school camps, day programs went through the roof, you know, to the point where some organisations are just doing those now. Just parents oversubscribed in the summer and so on and so forth. So, however, there's still the challenge for us within that kind of environment is... And COVID helped us, I'm the optimist, so, you know, COVID helped us because within that geographical area, the academic is the highest piece. So for not us now, helping parents to understand, well, that's an important piece, but we need to learn how to be a human before we can do our academic. So I'd say that's our kind of connection now is walking with parents through that. And in Australia, it's helping people not to take the outdoors for granted. You know, this industry has been here for a long time and... And Australian kids just take it for granted a little bit. But even that, you know, we had some severe weather. So we've got kids now when it rains, they go into the fetal position because of all the floods we've had, you know. So there's a different dynamic there as well. COVID was one of those, it's a chapter, right? And I think there's moments where you go pre this and post this and what changed and what didn't. And one of the things that I found with COVID actually in terms of the outdoors is in some ways, I think the good is that I think people found a rediscovery for the importance of outdoor experiences. In fact, I did a talk the other day where we talked about sort of this concept of essential, right? And how that word and the definition of that word changed because of COVID. So the stock market wasn't essential because we were able to shut it down and we were fine, but we weren't able to shut down the grocery store. But in the same way, the outdoors were essential in that same piece, because when we needed human interaction, which is what we needed, truly the outdoors became essential. And so my hope actually is that we hold on to something. Like if we learn anything from COVID is I do think it helped us reprioritize our lives and what are essential. And again, when everything else closed down, the outdoors stayed open and provided something that we all needed that was truly essential. And so my hope is that we, we hold on to that. The further we emerge from this experience, like let's remember how essential those experiences were 
um, and not take them for granted again. You're both dads. How do you think being part of this industry has influenced your parenting style? I shouldn't have. <laughs> shouldn't have had kids or shouldn't have had Yeah, no. Well, you know, you guys know I've got six kids. We kept going till we had one we liked. Yeah, so <laughs> um, for me, early in my career, I came up with this thought. And look, I think I came up with it, but I'm not owning it. Who knows where it came from? But this thing crystallized that my job as a facilitator is to just help my participants find their rhythm. So in life, my goal is to try and work with them to find their rhythm, whatever that might be, in how they navigate life. And that's not about academics. It's not even about experience or whatever. But with the sum total of their life right now, what has that given them and how can, can we work with them to find that rhythm? And I think as, that's what I've learned for as a parent. I think as I come into it now, that my job's to facilitate that experience. Sometimes that's uh, give me your phone, go into a cave and I'm going to lock the door and I'll see you in six months, which is common parenting in Australia too. That's, oh, that's good. good. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to lock you up with the kangaroos and you're not coming out there later. <laughs> but I think that's the thing for me is to facilitate that experience. We're not, not being wishy-washy. I don't mean that by being this, oh, as you go, south wind, as you feel free. But I think finding where they're going, you know, like, my son has this vocal tell that no one knew of until he was asked to sing at school formal and we didn't even know about it, but he's the opening act. That's another story. But I think now that's in my job is to help him find that, not to give any expectation or demand any expectation around academics or university or whatever, but for him to find that place himself. So whether that's a good result or not, you know, interviewing yeah. kids, but none of yeah. them in jail yet. There you go. <laughs> I did not have six. I stopped it. I decided we would stop until one gave me a heart attack, and turns out that was number two. So, no, I, I think for me in the same way that, you know, I look at how I facilitate and, and work, and, and it's, it's a lot of questions. And so as weird as it is, like, I always try to ask my kids questions and not, you know, when they ask a question, I'll say, well, what do you think? And what are your thoughts? And, um, and kind of put that back on them. And then, you know, my job is, I think as a parent, is to make myself not needed. Right. And so even in tar in terms of like, well, can I have this snack? We'll be like, Well, when did you eat lunch? And you know, how do you think that candy bar is gonna make you feel? That kind of stuff. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's just even in the the way that I approach my conversations, the best dad I ever met, I asked him, I said, Do you have any advice? And he said, Just talk to your kids like they're humans. And I think that's exactly what we do as experiential educators, because truly, if we are facilitators, our job is to you know, just ask questions and, and not this is what I think. It really is. Well, what do you think? And tell me why. And so we have, we have a lot of those conversations in, in our house. And again, I, I have a three and a seven year old, so we're in different stages. Like the butt cheeks right now are super funny. Um, and so in the same way that I approach jokes too. Yeah. Um, I think it stays it all the way into seniors. Always funny. That's yeah, really funny. If you ever come visit the crops and my, my three-year-old said my butt cheeks hurt, that just means he has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, and it's just, it's just questions and it's just, I really like to just have a conversation with my kids like I would facilitating a group. For anyone listening who wants to do something similar to what either of you do or get involved in experiential education, what advice do you have for them? I always say, raise your hand. I talk about it all the time. Like I am, I am on this podcast because I raised my hand one time because I got involved with AE and I know, you know, we're talking about the broader field of experiential education. And also because I made you be on the podcast. Yeah. But I, I made, I'm like, 
looking now at it's sort of the network and I, I you know I was just thinking like I'm talking to two of my best friends and what you know one is in Florida and the other's in Australia and how cool and how lucky am I to have that experience and really it's just you know to t like I think we learn from experiences so don't be afraid to take the experience and whether that's you know, joining a, a, an organization like AE, which has become my home, my professional home, or just trying new things. Adult, you know, learn from experiences. And so in the same way that we're practicing and, and saying, hey, experiential education is a thing, well, don't be afraid to create your own experiences. We have this term called, it's the great Australian right, which is just to have a crack, you know, not to have crack, but to have a crack, uh, which means to have a go. And I think that's the key don't wait to be ready. Don't wait for your qualification. Don't worry. Wait till you've got all the boxes. It's like parenting. People say, oh, you know, when we're ready, we'll have children. You'll never be ready. And I think that comes back to that rhythm piece for me when I have a chat to people, even my own staff, and say, just follow your gut. You know, what do you like climbing? If you're a climber or if you just like craft, whatever the experience is, follow that. Just do more of that and bring some people along and Facilitation is something that you can learn, but just follow what gets you, I think, because what gets you typically is something that you've experienced and there's a reason why you're passionate about it, you know, and that's experiential learning. The old, it's caught, not taught saying, I believe the direct result of someone learning something through experience. And so for me, I just say to people, just start, put your hand up, as Brian said, just start, follow your rhythm and, and go where your gut leads you on it. And that's all I ever did. I was a radio announcer, went climbing, started working with young people, volunteering with young people. And then 30 years later, I'm sitting here talking to you, wonderful people, not really understanding why. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your experiences and your thoughts. And it's been a lot of fun. And I'd like to end because we always talk about reflection and our community and what we can learn from each other. So, Brian, what is something you learned from Rod during this podcast? Oh, during this podcast? Yeah, during this podcast. Um, <laughs> We're not going to go into like how to eat a steak with your hands. Or... I won't. <laughs> um, I think it's not something I've learned. It's just something that it continues to, to hit me with Rod is just... He always validates, you know, I, I have a gut, but I don't always follow it. And I remember even being on the board with Rod and I'd be like, I want to say something. But when I was on the board, I was the young one, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm not as experienced to these people. I, I'm not going to say anything. And Rod and you too, Sherry, always forced me like, no, 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 it's about what you have. Like, we're feeling it too. Say it. And so just that, that piece of like, it's okay sometimes to just say, I have a gut and I have a voice and I need to use it. And so Rod always helps me trust my gut which is why I have tones right over here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing that impresses me with Brian, uh, it's just he's so focused on what he does. And to be back at a place that he was 20 years ago says so much about Brian. And I think, you know, it's been a while since we've actually caught up. I think it's that piece of understanding that market within universities. It stank. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do Brian's job. You know, my ADD kick in and bird would fly past the window and I'd be off with the fairies. So... I think it's that piece of just being able to stick with something and his commitment to it. So they'll follow your gut then. I mean, the fact that he's still there doing what he's doing. And I think that's a legacy within the industry that we need is someone doing the same thing passionately for a reasonable amount of time to influence the lives. And 
And whilst he talks about being the young buck and makes little whips, quite inspirational for me. And if I, look, it's mutual admiration, so you know, I had a name badge for you, Brian, I'd be able to do that. I'll, I'll, so I'll bring it next time. We can swim. Thank you. <laughs> thanks again for joining us, Brian and Rod. And thanks to everyone for listening to the inaugural episode of It's in the Experience. We hope you gained some knowledge about experiential education and had some fun. You can join us each month as we introduce and converse with diverse and key voices in our community. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For additional information, resources, and a calendar of events, visit the Association for Experiential Education online at aee.org. Thanks for listening.